Well, good morning, church. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is going to be our passage this morning. And actually, we're going to be uh, doing a survey, kind of just flying through the book of Acts. Um, and so we'll start off in Acts chapter 2, but then we're going to move uh, through a couple other passages in Acts before we uh, pray. The, the title of the message this morning is Loving Christ and His Church in All Seasons. Loving Christ and His Church through all seasons. And we're going to look at Acts 2 and then Acts 8 and then Acts 28. And so if you could open up your Bibles uh, or your phones and let's look at Acts chapter 2 uh, and let's read uh, verses 42 through 47. And as you're turning there, I just saw this leaf on the way in. Um, I, I almost walked right past it and I looked down and I just saw this cute little leaf and uh, I was just thinking to myself, God, you're awesome. I mean, it, it's just the color of just this one leaf and let us stop to take notice of the beautiful leaves, brothers and sisters, as we enjoy this autumn season. And um, let's marvel and give thanks to God. One of the things about the leaves that I love, and notice this, because I love the I love when leaves are just kind of coming down off of the trees in the fall time. Um, they, they don't just fall; they dance to the ground. I mean. And I just can't help but just give thanks to God for how awesome He is. Amen? Isn't He so good? And uh, I love love this little guy. <laughs> it's great. So I'm going to keep it right up here and just marvel as I preach God's Word this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Let's, let's read together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. What an exciting passage. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 8. We're going to read uh, verses um, 1 through 4. Let's, let's read together. And Saul approved of his execution. This is talking about Stephen, the Christian Stephen in the Jerusalem church. Saul, later Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. And Acts chapter 28, very end of the book of Acts. Let's read God's Word together. Verse 28 of Acts 28. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He, speaking of uh, formerly Saul, now saved an apostle, Paul, he lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. He's in prison proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that a great end to the book of Acts? Let's uh, pray together and ask for God's blessing. Loving Christ in His church in all seasons. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for the opportunity to be able to be gathered here today. And Lord, thank You so much for the, the beautiful sky this morning on the way in the church, the the leaves, Lord, the leaves. It's just every year it happens here and we just, it can just, just pass by our minds without notice. And Lord, it's awesome the way you do what you do. And, uh, you don't just have them fall to the ground. They dance to the ground. And how, what a picture of just the glorious grace. You are so graceful. You are so beautiful. You, it's not enough for you to put leaves on a tree, but you turn them colors. Lord, it, you're just awesome, and we love you so much. And I pray that we would be moved and affected as we look at your word here together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was, I was thinking about preaching this message actually on our, uh, our 17th anniversary, but I thought to myself, I think now's the time as I was praying, because um, you know we had our members meeting last night. What a wonderful time together, and we were just talking about God and what he's been doing. And um, this, it seemed to just flow right right off of our time last evening, and I wanted to just hit in on this theme of loving Christ and His church in all seasons. We're going to look, uh, firstly, at hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. That's going to be our first point. Hold fast to the gospel. And that's going to focus in on Jesus. Um, at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the passage we read there just a moment ago, the gospel is preached and 3,000 people are added to the church. And, and then day by day, the Lord's adding to their number those who are being saved. What, what affects me is, is that the same gospel is preached by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and he's killed for it. Um, the gospel is preached to crowds, and it's preached to individuals. It's preached to the great and to the small. It's preached through times of joy and sorrow. In the book of Acts, you've got the gospel being preached and bringing about riot and revival. It's just all kinds of different reaction and response. You see uh, Paul admonishing Timothy in First Timothy or Second Timothy to preach the word, Timothy, in season and out of season. No matter how the tides of culture change or the season of, of what's going on in the midst of the culture and preach the word, Timothy, in season and out of season. When it's popular to preach the gospel, you preach it. And when it's not popular to preach the gospel, you preach it. And at the end of Acts, there's Paul in prison. The, the former persecutor giving Stephen's uh, death, his approval, is now suffering for the gospel himself and he's still receiving anyone who would come visit him. And he's not a bitter man. He is proclaiming Jesus Christ 
with all boldness and without hindrance, even though he's not too long after that going to be martyred for his faith in Christ as well as many others in the early church. Brothers and sisters, we are called to hold fast to the gospel in all times and in all seasons. I was reflecting on 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, and I want to read um, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15 to remind us of, of what is of first importance in the life of the church. For I delivered to you, Paul says to the Corinthian church, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, brothers and sisters, we see the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church there and saying that he desired to know nothing amongst them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul spent much time with the Corinthians and preached, no doubt, on many topics and taught to them the whole counsel of God, no doubt, throughout the Scriptures, but he always kept focusing in on the main thing. And the main thing is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is always the matter of first importance. As 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And He was buried. And He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We must always remember to hold fast to the Gospel, because that is the, the connecting theme you see all the way throughout Acts 2 and Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 28. You know, we live in a culture, brothers and sisters, that's always clamoring for what is new. And there can be a clamoring and a restlessness for, for getting something new going in church. Um, and the question can be even coming to our minds of, do we always need to keep being fed by the same message? Yes, indeed, we do. Um, and we have a responsibility personally to make the gospel of Christ our point of self-identification. Now, I've shared this quote numerous times over the years. I'm going to share it again because I think it's so important for us in this formative time for us to take it to heart. And um, this quote here is by D.A. Carson in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry. Uh, D.A. Carson said this about a, a trend that took place in a certain denomination. He said, I have heard a Mennonite leader assess his own movement in this way. One generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed that the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. It no longer lies at the heart of the belief system of some who call themselves Mennonites. Now there's many Mennonites that hold fast to the gospel gloriously, but he's talking about a certain branch here and it's important for us to just take this to heart as a local church. Carson goes on to say, whether or not this is a fair reading of the Mennonites, it's certainly a salutary warning for evangelicals at large. We are already at the stage where many evangelical leaders simply assume the message of the cross, but no longer lay much emphasis on it. 
their focus is elsewhere. And a few, it seems to me, are in danger of distancing themselves from major components of the message of the cross while still operating within the context of evangelicalism. It is at least possible that we are the generation of believers who will destroy much of the historic Christian faith from within. Not in the first instance by rancid unbelief, but by raising relatively peripheral questions to the place where functionally they displace what is central. And what shall the end of this be? We must come back to the cross and to God's plan of redemption that centers on the cross and make that the point of our self-identification. Make the cross, brothers and sisters, the point of our self-identification. You know, it, it moves me, Christ community. And this is a little bit more of a burden message. It's, it's not moving out of exposition as much as when we're going through um, numbers and Deuteronomy, the way we'll be heading back into that next week. But I, I wanted to deliver this. I think it's very important. Um, it moves me that it's possible to be in a gospel-centered church like this one and to be around the gospel all the time and to hear it often, but to not make it the point of our personal self-identification or our family self-identification. And I want to ask you, what, what gets you up on a stump? What gets a reaction out of you? What causes you to be moved to tears? What grips your focus in life and in your attention? Far above all things, dear brothers and sisters of Christ's community, may it be Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen from the dead, and all that Christ has done for you in saving you from hell for heaven that moves you the most and is the point of your self-identification as a Christian. Many Christians, and I think we can testify to this, many Christians are more passionate about all kinds of things, even good things, more than they are Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. They begin to tire of the Gospel over time and take it for granted. But what we saw from Carson and what he said is that what can happen to a church from one generation to the next can be that we can actually lose the gospel in time if each of us individually, as brothers and sisters in Christ, don't hold fast to the gospel and make the cross of Christ the point of our self-identification. May each of us never forget what Jesus did. But also, not just not forget it, may it move us personally on a regular and daily basis as we're heading into work and coming back from work, as we're having fellowship with our family, and let it be that our kids often hear us marveling about what God has done to save us, and that we talk about how blown away we are, that Christ would have died and rose from the dead for a sinner like us. Let that be common talk in our midst, because there was no hope for us to get to heaven if Christ didn't do what he did. In the movie Avengers Infinity War, I shared this story at youth camp, and I want to share it with you because it really affects me. Doctor Strange goes into the future and examines 
14 million possible futures with the time stone to see if there's any one possible future where they come out on top and win and beat the scourge Thanos. Now, the movie ends on a low note where Thanos seems to have achieved his goal of wiping out half of the universe's population with the snap of his finger. The movie ends with the evil villain smiling this awful smirk of self-satisfaction after having achieved his goal. Now, that same kind of smirk probably was on Satan's face after he thought he had done away with Jesus for good and dashed mankind's only hope. Imagine that moment when Satan saw Christ risen from the grave and realized that all his hopes were done and that the gates of hell were getting smashed in and he had been bound and he was going to have to watch Christ nonstop plunder his house and liberate once-imprisoned souls like you and I out of his grasp once and for all. Oh, it would have been a great moment to see the party in hell come to an abrupt end on that great Resurrection Sunday. And to see the moment when Jesus wiped that Thanos-like grin off of Satan's face when he rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, thinking of the scenario of going into all of the possible futures that you could possibly have. Of the infinity of possible futures for your life. Every single one of them ended with you and I in hell suffering for our sins forever. Except one. And that is the future of God sending His own Son to die on the cross for our sins. And He did it. God sent His own Son, Jesus, to die for you. And that is to be a constant source of amazement and joy to us, Christ community. It is to be what we hold fast to and our point of self-identification. Teens, as you walk into school, Monday morning, there should be a resounding sense of that the Lord Jesus has laid hold of you and of the millions of infinite possible futures for your life. There was only one where you don't end up in hell and you're living it. You're saved as a young man, as a young woman of God. Let that mark your life and be the point of your self-identification. And let us all be amazed and let it be known that what Christ Community Church is passionate about and will remain most passionate about is the person of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, in the very first sermon preached from the Metropolitan Tabernacle, opened up the pulpit with these words. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I remember I had the honor of the preaching the opening sermon of our church back 
in November of 2001, and I opened up the first sermon here in the Governor Mifflin Middle School with our little church planning team with those words from Spurgeon and said, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, shall be the person and work of Jesus Christ. I love uh, the story of the pulpit at All Souls Church in London, where John Stott was a faithful minister for many years, and now he's now with Jesus. They had inscribed on the pulpit to any preacher who would go up and stand behind it to preach a sermon, the words of the Greeks who came to visit the disciples to see Jesus before Jesus went to die on the cross. The Greeks said to the disciples, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. To remind every man that comes behind the pulpit that the pulpit is not a platform for any pastor or preacher to espouse his own ideas or thoughts. The pulpit is about bringing people to Jesus. Helping people to see Jesus. And that has been our passion from day one. And brothers and sisters in Christ, may we never tire of reveling in Christ ourselves, reminding each other of Him, counseling Him in care group, singing praises to Him on Sunday mornings, preaching Him and serving Him in the highways and byways all around our area with all the strength that we have, as long as we have breath. Nothing is more worthy of our energy and our time and our devotion and our passion than Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. You know, Lord willing, coming up in a couple weeks, we'll celebrate our 17th. I I pray that I'll be here for our 50th. (laughs) Walking around as a 95-year-old man with a cane. And if I'm able to speak, and if I'm able to say anything, it's going to be about Christ. And I pray, and I come, and I I pray that this pulpit will be ringing out the name of Jesus Christ loud and clear in the Holy Spirit's power then. Because the Gospel alone is the power of God on the salvation. And there is no other way for the lost to be saved and the church to be built except upon the rock of the name of Jesus Christ. I know you know all that and love it, but it's important to state it again. And we have a responsibility, church, to make sure that the cross is what we are most passionate about and moved by in our lives. This is a day where many Christians are more passionate about politics than they are about the cross of Jesus Christ. Let it not be in our midst. It's okay, of course, to have an interest in these things, and they matter and should be the subject of our prayers, but brothers and sisters, in terms of our energy and our passion and our focus and our thought life, and may Christ dominate. And may He be clearly what we are most passionate about. 
as Carson said, it's possible for a church to say, yeah, we believe the gospel, but we're also very passionate about different social issues as well. Today, it's ringing out all over the evangelical church in America the importance of standing up for certain social justice causes. And many of those causes are very important. But brothers and sisters, may we never be more passionate for any cause, even a good cause, more than we are the cross of Christ and the preaching of the Gospel and the proclamation of the Gospel to the lost. If we champion many different, even good, noble social justice causes, without keeping our gaze centered and our passion focused on holding fast to the Gospel, as Carson admonishes us, it is possible that for a church like ours, that our children will be more passionate about politics than they are about Jesus. And then our grandchildren don't really care much about Jesus at all. And I think we have a responsibility as pastors to make sure that we keep us all focused on Christ. This is a church-wide responsibility that we remain passionately God-centered and not man-centered. And that we also focus passionately on the matter of first importance so that we do not experience that generational drift that Carson talks about. This is important, isn't it? And please remember what I said. It's not that those other things aren't important and that they don't deserve prayer and focus. But nothing should ever garner the passion in my heart. Nothing should ever be my point of self-identification. No cause should, should dominate and, and be identified in my heart as the, the uppermost cause that I'm passionate about more than Jesus Christ. And there shouldn't be a, a close second. It's Christ and Him crucified. And then, of course, we speak to all manner of what Scripture speaks to. But it should be very clear in all of us. And we all have a responsibility to do this. You know, our, our, our children and our grandchildren, they will, they will catch what we are most passionate about often more than what we simply say we're passionate about. We can say we're passionate about Christ, and, but if we are functionally much more heated, much more engaged, much more interested in other things rather than Christ and Him crucified, that will get caught by our children and our grandchildren. And we have a responsibility to not just make it our point of self-identification, but to be personally just so moved that Christ would have died on the cross for us like He did and saved us from the eternity in hell that we deserve to be in, as Tom said this morning, even right now. And so let us keep our eyes on this together. Let us hold fast to the Gospel. It's the one common theme in Acts 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 28. The Word of Christ is still advancing in the church through all the seasons.
you know this and it, it's, you know that it, uh, it's something that we're passionate about. Um, and we talk about this often, but it, it bears repeating, doesn't it? Because it's so very, very important. Thank you, church, for your faithful commitment to these things. And we all have a responsibility to keep our eyes on Christ together. And I know God's going to give us grace to do that. Let us pray that God will continue to give us grace uh, to do that as we head into our future. The second point, stay committed through the ups and downs. This is going to focus more on church. So the first point focused on Christ. The second point focuses on church. And so let's talk about Point number two from the book of Acts. From the time I got saved, I wanted to be a part of a church like the early church. Many of you could probably identify with this. I, you can't help but read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 and just get pumped. Uh, you know, just in relation to the recap, there's this evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit found here in abundance and the fruits of the Holy Spirit just abounding here. Um, but there's more to the church's story than just simply Acts chapter 2. And you see in Acts chapter 3, the gospel continues to advance. Miracles are done. Acts chapter 4, uh, the gospel's proclaimed. The Holy Spirit falls on the church, and the, the church is filled with all boldness to proclaim Christ. And the, the numbers of the church grew from 3,000 souls to 5,000 souls. And you, you read Acts chapter 1 through 4, and you just kind of, as a, as a Christian, you just want to say, hey, sign me up. This is exciting. And reading the early chapters and Acts can potentially lead you to have expectations that are not in keeping with the reality of the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. The happy days of Acts 2 and 4 are marked by joy and advancement, addition and power and boldness and striking signs and wonders, conversions, baptisms, commitment to one another, glad and generous hearts giving to one another, love for Christ and one another that caused the whole world to take notice and for the whole world to be turned upside down. Oh yeah, sign me up. I want to be a part of that. And they grew in abundant measure. But those days are replaced as seasons change and seasons of difficulty and suffering and sharp reminders that they weren't in heaven yet came upon them and that they were still in the wilderness, the midbar in the Hebrew. Those happy days were replaced by seasons of difficulty and suffering. Um, and they started to realize this isn't going to be a never-ending crescendo and a building up of more and more advancement, joy, generosity, happy vibe, love and power all the way until we get to heaven. In Acts chapter 5, right after Acts 4, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them with all boldness, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and they're struck down by the Lord. It actually says in Acts chapter 5 that fear came upon the whole church. Fear. Acts chapter 6 right after Ananias and Sapphira are cut down. It didn't stop in Acts chapter 6, complaints from within the church beginning to arise 
about who is getting what in the widow's daily distribution of food. The early church had complaining taking place within it that no doubt had a dampening effect on the individuals around. You also see a godly man raised up named Stephen to help be a part of a solution to that problem. And just a quick aside here, and we've talked about this a lot over this last season, let us all labor to be a part of the solution to the weaknesses and problems that we see in our church. It is a real easy thing to be critical of what's missing or what you don't like and what you're dissatisfied with, but make yourself available to help in any way you can, and you will be like fresh wind in the sails to your brothers and sisters around you and to the leaders. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Giving your all to building what Christ is building, which is his church, is the most important thing that you can give your life to, eternally speaking. And let us all labor to be a part of the solution to the problems that we see and we perceive. Let us pray and love. Let us give ourselves to serving Christ with all of our hearts like Stephen did in the book of Acts. Stephen's a godly and a good man. It said that he had a face like an angel. And in Acts 7, he preaches the gospel and dies for it. His angel-like face is stoned with stones because of his faithfulness to the same gospel proclamation that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and saved 3,000. Preach the word in season and out of season, brothers and sisters. There are times when the gospel is received with repentance and faith. There are times when it is received with rage and the grinding of teeth and the stoning of stones. We want to be found faithful together in all seasons. And the question I have for us is, will we be fair-weather Christians? Will we be fair-weather churchmen and churchwomen? Or will we rather be churchmen in all times and seasons, churchwomen in all times and seasons, faithful in the happy days, but also faithful in the hard days within the life of the local church. It actually said that when Stephen died, great lamentation was lifted up. And that must have been hard. They were grieving. So all the days of the glad and generous hearts are just now marked with grief. They have fear in the background. And right when you're thinking, okay, man, they're going to get a break from this, and sunny days are going to come back at some point here, it actually says that right when they're grieving, Saul starts ravaging the church. It's like, come on, can we get a break here? It just keeps coming. These storms come upon the early church and they come and a great persecution breaks out that scatters the church in Jerusalem. You know, I, I, I would always read Acts 2 and hear about the people being added and the 3,000 being added and just jump up and down. And the early church after Acts 8 didn't look the same. The church in Jerusalem didn't look the same anymore. It was different. And so many individuals were scattered north out from Jerusalem, and some went to Samaria, some ended up in Antioch, and many might have said in the church, the local church in Jerusalem after it was scattered, I don't know what's happening to our church. It's a different church than it used to be. We lost so many people, and the happy memories of Acts 2 seem like a distant memory. And this wasn't just in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters. It happened in Antioch also. In Acts 13, you've got the now-saved Apostle Paul. 
Let me talk about just, he's, he's persecuting the church, now he's saved. You just can't control what God's going to do, and he just moves gloriously and mysteriously. It just moves in power, but he brings the persecution upon the church and scatters them, and the church, as it's scattered, takes the gospel forth. Acts 13, you've got the now saved apostle Paul laboring side by side with Barnabas, and they're in the same local church together. The Holy Spirit raises them up and sends them out. God uses them greatly together to plant churches. And no doubt, the churches were filled with joy. But in Acts 15, if you read this carefully, only two chapters later after Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement between them. And they are no longer able to serve Christ side by side with one another anymore. Paul and Barnabas, sent out from Antioch, no longer able to serve Christ side by side anymore because the disagreement was so sharp between these brothers. You know, I read that, and that story just saddens me every time. It affects me. And I read that, and I can't help but think, I wonder how that disagreement affected emotionally the church in Antioch that sent them out. Or the churches in Galatia that they planted together. You know, it's a sad reality in the life of every local church, even the early church, and that ought to be encouraging to us, that disputes and disagreements happen and brothers and sisters part ways with one another, and sometimes it seems over things that they shouldn't have parted over. Barnabas helped Paul after he was newly saved to be accepted by the church in Jerusalem in Acts 9. I was reading the background of that, and I was like, man, this, this was, that must have been rough. Barnabas in Acts 11 later found Paul in Tarsus and brought him to the church in Antioch where they taught side by side in the same local church. The church in Antioch sent relief to the church in Jerusalem by these two men. In Acts 13, they were sent out on the great church planning efforts, and that brought much joy and gospel advancement. And you could think, after all that God had done in and through these men, why would it come to this? Why? There must be things that they're not telling us. This isn't right. Some of more of a mercy orientation might have said, after all that Barnabas did for Paul, why would Paul do that to Barnabas? I'm done with him. Others of a more justice orientation might have said, after what John Mark did when he departed from the mission work that Paul and Barnabas took him on, how could Barnabas not see Paul's perspective that of course you just don't take a John Mark back with you a second time? The man's unreliable. And they could have taken sides. Some could have said, I agree with Barnabas. Others might have said, I agree with Paul. Some could have sank into sadness that caused them to be personally discouraged. I'm sure that must have happened. But some might have just said, you know, these guys are such godly men, and if Paul and Barnabas can't get along, what hope is there for me? Another group might say this. You know, I don't want to be a part of any church that has such disagreements and hard times hit it. I'm going to leave and go to another church where nothing like this is ever going to happen again. (laughs) 
brothers and sisters, I know you know this. That is not possible this side of heaven in any local church. I uh, I was talking with a friend who had visited a, a church on uh, vacation. They were in another state, and they they went and they went in the church and came out so uplifted and. And they were saying, oh, man, that is what I want all the time. I just want to go to church and be free of feeling pain and spiritual battle. <laughs> and and this uh, couple, these friends, wisely said to one another, you know what? We were at that church for one service. If we became members there and became family there and committed like we're all called to commit, just like we are here, We would no doubt in time face the same kinds of hard and perplexing things here as we do at our church. And there's real wisdom in that, isn't there? Stay committed, even through the hard. And don't think that there's a church life out there that is free from hard things like doctrinal wrestlings and relational struggles. Remember, Acts 15's also got the Jerusalem Council where they're wrestling through tough doctrinal matters related to the gospel of grace. And there was sharp dispute between them as they were wrestling through it. But we think, oh man, nothing good can get accomplished in that kind of thing. Not at all. The gospel of grace was preserved. And God ordains for the church to work through, to fight for sound doctrine. And and He also ordains... In a mysterious way, the relational struggles that drive us to our knees and cause us to remember, oh Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. Antioch experienced the relational rift and Jerusalem experienced the doctrinal dispute over the gospel of grace. These things, brothers and sisters in Christ's community, are a normal part of local church life in the New Testament. These were the apostles having these types of challenges. And I think we can just think, there's no way that these things happen amongst the early church. I think we do sometimes uh, idealize the early church as if they were all walking around in white robes all the time, shining radiant beams out from their bodies, their clothes, and they didn't struggle with sin just like all Christians do. If we say, I want to be a part of a church that's like Acts 1 through 4, but never goes through the ups and downs of Acts 5 through 28. We can never be a part of a local church at all. Because to be in a local church this side of heaven means that we are always going to be experiencing the weaknesses and the remaining indwelling sin of our brothers and sisters, and and they're also going to be experiencing ours. And at times, that's going to affect our lives in a way that we would rather it not. And we say, but these things ought not to be the case, ever. Agreed. But the reality of it is that they are like this in these wilderness days before we get to heaven. And we must not let the disappointing reality that church life will sometimes bring sadness into our hearts to cause us to dampen in our zeal for Christ or His love for His church and our love for the church. Some might say, well, I don't know what the problem is with people struggling over this whole dispute. Paul and Silas now are going out for the gospel 
And now Barnabas and John Mark are going out and they're going in two different directions. Double gospel impact. What's the big deal? Come on, we're no more sad faces. The gospel's going forward. Now, there's there's something so good in that, and that's true. It's a happy thing to consider that God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform and advances his gospel and those sorts of things. He does send the gospel forth to more locations through sometimes relational breakdowns that happen between Paul and Barnabas. And that's something that those of us who fixate on the sad need to remember. However, I said this last night, let those of us who rejoice in that reality also walk in love toward those who are still hurting over the fact that Paul and Barnabas aren't serving side by side any longer. And let us let us give them time to heal. Let us help them in their healing with patience and compassion. But then let us rise up together here in Antioch and remember that there's more good work that God has for us to do for His glory through us. And even though hard and sad things can be easily accessed in any local church's history, What defines us is Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and the fact that there's more work to be done for the glory of his name. Let us, Christ's community, burn with renewed zeal, even though we have been weather-beaten and beat up. And let us run our race personally and also run our race as a local church all the way to the end. Let us not take our eyes off of Jesus, but rather place them on him once again with even greater focus. Amen? Let us recognize that a weather-beaten church, hear this, a weather-beaten church beat up by persecution, storms, sadness, hardship, and still loves Jesus and actually loves Jesus even more after all that, is a stronger testimony and a brighter light. for the glorious gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ than a church that hasn't gone through all that. The things that you've gone through and the things that we've gone through have hurt us. But they have also the power to make us stronger if we'll let it. Most Christians run from it. And in our American Christian context, many Christians will not allow themselves to be pressed into hard seasons for very long. But for those who will stay, those who remain through the hard pressing of the battle, on the other side, there is a sweetness with Christ. And also this, there is a sweetness in the bond of love between one another. There will be a depth in the koinonia that Jason was talking about, that will get deeper and sweeter over time as we mature and allow the trials and hardship and storms that hit our individual lives and hit us as a church to produce the James 1 steadfastness that will cause us to become more mature over time. We are to love Christ and love His church in the best of times and also in the hardest and the saddest of times. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Why were the old days better than these? Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? 
for it is not wise to ask such questions. Ecclesiastes 7.10 It's not from wisdom that you say things like, why were the old days better than these? And there is a nostalgia about the old days that can actually stumble us if we're not careful. I remember when Stephen was alive. I remember when Philip was still in the Jerusalem church. I remember Paul and Barnabas serving side by side together with joy with one another. I was there in that meeting in Acts 13 when the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work for which I prepared them. Those days, oh, I wish we could go back to those days. And we can idealize the past days and it can hinder us from embracing what God has for us right in front of us. Let us embrace the reality of all the ups and downs of the local church life in Acts 5-28. through And let us stay committed to Christ and His church in all seasons. You know, uh, some of you may be aware of this, but after Hurricane Florence hit Wilmington and, and the storm hit there, um, there was so much damage to houses, Allstate ran a commercial where they showed a picture of a tree down right outside of Charleston in John's Island called the Angel Oak. It's actually just called the tree by individuals who live near it. The Angel Oak is estimated to be 400 to 500 years old. It's a live oak. It stands 66 and a half feet tall. It measures 28 feet in diameter. And it produces shade that covers 17,200 square feet. Its longest branch distance, think about this, is 187 feet in length. Its branch. Ferns and other greenery grow upon the tree making it even more beautiful for the glory of God. When I saw the Allstate commercial, I was watching a football game, and then the Allstate commercial came on, and nobody else was in the room, and they just showed it. And I saw the tree, and it just stopped me in my tracks. I just couldn't, I was transfixed. I kept my eyes on it. And they had this precious music playing in the background. of just It was so beautiful, just seeing the, the ferns growing in the midst of this beautiful live oak tree and the, 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 the branches were twisting up in this beautiful shape and, and it was spreading out and it was just an original. It was unique. It was wonderful. I just found myself crying as I saw this picture and this little video of the angel oak. It was so moving to me and me and Shannon and the kids were so affected by it that when we were on our way back from the pastor's conference, we drove down this year and we, uh, we took our kids down uh, just to journey with us. We stopped by John's Island on the way back just to go and see the angel oak in person. If you get a chance to uh, buy a good, sweet audio book, load your family up and drive down to Charleston to go visit the angel oak. It'll be a great family memory. It was awesome. We stood there as a family and looked. And, and actually, the gate was closed because we got there after time. I mean, we were just looking through the fence and seeing this oak tree, because you can see it from the road, it was unbelievable seeing it live. And um, in fact, um, we bought uh, this work of art um, in Charleston later on as we were kind of hanging around the city there. You're welcome to see this. Now, this 
work of art is very beautiful and it's going to capture that memory for us as a family. It's nothing compared to seeing this thing live and it's nothing compared to uh, just a beautiful picture of it. If you go and just look, look, Angel woke up and just, just, just enjoy the images. I mean, people sit there and just paint this tree. It is so glorious. There's a character and there's a depth and a gloriousness that this angel oak radiates that a sapling does not radiate. Christ community, what is being built here for the glory of God, I believe is a beautiful, sweet angel oak tree of beauty, a tree of power and endurance, a tree that grows slowly over time. It took 500 plus years to grow into the beautiful angel oak from a sapling. And we must have the long view of God's work of the Gospel as well as the urgent prayers for God to move powerfully in the here and now. We must remember that the beautiful character that causes Christ to be glorified, doesn't simply get built in one year or two or five. But I like to think of Christ's community holding on to the gospel of Christ with passion together as a body and what we will look like in 50 years if we do. Oh, it'll be beautiful. If I am, in fact, walking around here at 95 years old with a cane, I'll probably no doubt be more grayer than I am even right now. And and uh, But man, I hope I don't lose, and I pray I don't lose an ounce of passion. My passion for Christ will be even stronger than I pray, and so will yours. If we keep the gospel central, we never forget that he loved us and gave himself for us. And we make the cross our point of self-identification. And every pastor that ever is in this pulpit makes the cross of Christ the focal point of his preaching and builds up God's people in the love of God and the glorious character of our almighty God. And if we do these things together by the power of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, all of that still won't save us from storms. But you know what? It'll send down the roots real deep like the live oak and the wood will be strong. And we will become more and more beautiful for Jesus over time. And I just want to say, like when I look at this picture and when I was there, I was thinking of you all. And I was thinking about what God's building between us. And I want to let you know, Christ Community Church, um, I said this last night, and I know I'm speaking for John as well. You are, you are so loved by us and as your pastors. And we have a precious church, don't we? Don't we have a sweet, precious local church? I look at the buds of sweet growth and the men's and women's Bible studies that arise and the, the, the different outreaches that just are coming up out from the membership of our church. And uh, yes, as time's gone on, we've endured storms and we've been weather beaten. But all the more as these green shoots of fresh life and outreach and growth take place internally as we grow more mature in Christ and as we step forward into our common mission and purpose together and keep our eyes on Jesus together. It is beautiful what God is doing. And it's just worthy of celebrating and giving glory to God for a local church that's together, not just for one year or five, but 
a local church that grows old together, that raises their kids and sees their grandkids together. And I've got vision and excitement to see us weather storms like the Angel Oak. It, it, it talked about in 1989, and it sustained some damage from Hurricane Hugo. You know what? That tree has endured storms before the American Revolution happened. And Hurricane Hugo, it's going to make it through that as well. It's going to make it through Florence. It's going to make it through Michael. It's going to send down roots. It's going to stay strong. That's the kind of local church you are. And let us pray that we would be like that more and more in the days to come. And may it be that 146-foot branches spread out from us and bring shade to Croatia and bring shade to all other areas that God has for us to send out branches to. And may, may ferns grow in the branches and add to the beauty of and the luster of the glory of this living organism. I love what God's doing amongst us. And I'm so proud of you, church, for the way that you have weathered the storms, even that we've experienced over the last season of the life of our church. I want you to really know that as we wind down here this morning, that my heart, as your senior pastor, is just absolutely filled with hope as we head into our church's future together. I am so excited. I can't wait to see all that God is going to do through us in the days to come. Let us not allow the fact that Hurricane Hugo brings damage to some of our branches in a certain season and we feel it together. No, let us keep our eyes on Christ. We will heal in time and we will spread out the branches again and We will help bind up one another's wounds whenever storms come in our lives individually or when they come into our lives as a church. We're going to love one another through it. We're going to be faithful to one another through it because that's what the church does. We thrive and we feed on the love of Christ and we display the love of Christ to one another and we don't stop just because we have experienced storms. We go on in love. And the beauty and the usefulness of a church like that to our Master is so, so very wonderful. And it's so important to know that Christ's church lasts through every storm. And do not ever let your heart be discouraged, my dear brothers and sisters, that though Christ's church sails through many different waters of cultural change over the last 2,000 years and cannon fire from Satan and those following him over time, she will never be sunk. But rather, God will show his power through what he has built. And the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. And it's not to the testimony of the church's strength. It's to the testimony and glory of God's sustaining grace, which holds his church up and keeps it up. So that when hurricanes hit it again and again, she will endure. And though damaged and hurt, she will recover and radiate her beauty in Christ from one generation to the next, and then to the next, and then to the next until Jesus Christ returns to deliver His beautiful church. 
that's been weather-beaten after many storms, now radiating like a glorious bride forever, safely home in heaven. Yeah, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of all that. I want to rejoice with you through the years and laugh together. I want to weep together as well. Let let us be that kind of church. This world so needs to see something like that. Thank you for being that. (laughs) Whenever I look at this and we'll have it up in our house, I'll be thinking of you and thanking God for you. Love you, church. So excited about what God's got for us in the days and months and years to come. Amen. I'm just going to close this in prayer and ask for God to to bless us as we go forward. Lord God, thank you so much for all that you've done. I, I thank you so much for what you do in a period of time like one day, like Pentecost, where 3,000 get added in a single day. You can move in that kind of power, and we pray for you to move in that kind of power in our area, in the city of Reading, all around, Lord. Bring revival and bring it fast and sharp and raise us up to be able to disciple those individuals when they're saved and see them added to your church. Move in striking power. But also, God, give us vision as your children. To delight in what you do in 2,000 years. To delight in what you do in a local church in 50 years. And after hundreds and hundreds of Bible studies are accomplished. And hundreds and hundreds of sermons are preached. And hundreds and hundreds of counseling situations happen where we remind one another of Jesus and keep our eyes on him together. What glory is built over time? Give us vision to be like the angel oak. Make us, as Christ's community, into that kind of tree. And may many, many people be blessed with salvation through faith in Jesus Christ as a result of our individual witness, but also our corporate witness to your praise and to your glory and to your fame, Jesus. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, I love you. You have a great, great day. Aren't you so thankful for what God's doing in our lives and in our church? Thank you, Lord. Have a wonderful, wonderful day and rejoice in what Christ has done for you. God bless you.